and welcome to episode 192 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line, also from Chicago, but really the suburbs, it's the godfather, Dave Harbarger. Stan, I have, I have one thing to say to you today. Shana Tova, my friend. Shana Tova. I, I put the emphasis elsewhere. I say Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Well, I'm looking at the web and it says, it has the, the, the second syllables are in capital letters, but uh, I hope as your Gentile friend, I can say that to you on your, on your New Year's. Yeah, no, I appreciate the allyship. Thank you. It, it's been a good New Year. I've had a lot of challah, a lot of apple and honey. It's been good. We actually, my wife and I had a little bet recently about the exact pronunciation and I reached out to one of my best friends who's Orthodox and I asked him the right pronunciation and he goes well it turns out they're both right and it depends on whether or not you're yiddish or israeli <laughs> perfect i'm good either way there you go shane is gone this week he's missing new year's he's missing the new year he's or maybe he's celebrating in italy yeah well-known jewish homeland of italy <laughs> that's right shane we miss you shane's gone this episode and next episode but we think he'll be back in time for 194. Yeah. If he catches his flight, at least. And he, how could he leave us with the keys to the house? Ah, ah. Crazy David, yeah. crazy Stan. Here we are. <laughs> you know it. Yeah. Yeah. With Shane gone, things are going to get a little fast and loose and dive down headquarters. We have a long breakdown and a short dive down this week maybe it's more of a long breakdown no dive down and a casual wind down shane's gone so we don't have to categorize these things yeah you know we don't have any rules it's all rules just right no rules just right here now not all rules all rules just right would be kind of weird we're post-structure structure like post-modernism is dead post-structuralism is i think the future of podcasting certainly that's right. People don't care about the chapters. We had comments of people complaining about the chapters before. So guess what? They're gone. It's just a nice show now. And this week's nice show is about a couple of things. First, we're going to start with a recap of NRG Minneapolis. We're going to talk a bit about the modern main event, as well as a little bit on the Pioneer 5K that happened on Sunday. Yeah, as is our purview being the official podcast of the uh, Nerd Rage Gaming Championship Series. Hello, everybody. Please help. Uh, please help norm and the crew at at energy and also check out this dive down we're about to do on that tournament it's a great tournament really interesting top eight in particular i think absolutely and uh, from what i heard a certain modern mostly modern casual spike podcast was pretty on the nose with the anticipated results versus the actual results but i think we'll get into that yeah yeah let's talk well i can't wait to talk about it because i you know What's a prediction? It's, it's, is it a joke that a joke about the future or is it a real thing? Then we've got, you know, a quasi wind dive down ish because Dave and I wanted to play something in anticipation of this week's episode. We weren't necessarily sure how long the energy component of the show is going to be. We decided we we're going to do a little bit of unique challenge oriented playtesting challenge for ourselves. We did not play any challenges unless Dave did and I don't know about it. We decided we're going to play some decks that we've never tried before individually i picked a deck i've never played dave picked a deck that he's never played and we're just gonna share some quick and dirty experiences from those games i do think we should reveal the decks to help people who don't want to sit through the meta breakdown maybe go ahead and know what we're gonna do if they're listening this long and so i chose to play mono green ramp nykthos ramp band ramp depending on what you call it now in pioneer uh first time long time i guess Nice. And I chose to play 
Teamer escape shift in modern. I've never resolved the escape shift until preparation for this episode. And it was hard. Yeah. Hard to, hard to cast that card. Guess what else is hard to play? Mono green ramp in pioneer. Kinda. Yeah. So if you, if you just want to hear us fumble through these powerful, but difficult decks, fast forward to whatever timestamp we've indicated in the show notes or stick around for the NRG recap. We'd love to have you either way. Before all that, though, let's housekeep. We've got a new patron, JJ. JJ. Thanks, JJ. JJ, you rock, rock. <laughs> we J-Rock, love you, J-Rock. you. Thank you. Also, shout out to Josh T for going up a tier in their patronage. Thanks, Josh. That's awesome. Worth noting, patrons, people who have joined, we are pretty much up to date with swag for people. If you've joined in the last month, I believe, we probably we're, we still have not gotten swag out to you. But everybody else up to then, we have at least tried to send your packages to you. I had five boxes returned, five orders of boxes of deck boxes returned. I don't think any of Stan's packages of uh, deck boxes and playmats were returned. And Shane, before he left us for a while went through and caught up on all the people who were owed token stickers, deck boxes, etc. Um, so we should be good, America and the rest <laughs> of the world. But well, I think I, I think we only ship to America, North America this this oh, time around. Yes, we should be good, America. Uh, rest of the world, we will be coming for you once Shane gets back from the rest of the world. That's the plan. Yes. If you'd like to support our show and get in on all of the swag bag goodness, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down. You can, of course, support our show while playing Magic as well with the Manager subscription. Promo code the dive down 15. It gets you 10% off. It makes sense. If you don't focus on the numbers too much, 10% off your first two months of a Manager subscription. If we're known for one thing, it's not focusing on the numbers too much here at the That's dive right. down. Yeah. And of course, we're about to talk about NRG. We're the official podcast of the NRG series. You can participate in NRG tournaments, or you can participate in your own local tournaments. You're going to need paper cards, and you can get a discount when you buy them from Nerd Rage Gaming. If you use promo code DIVE8, it'll get 8% off your order from NRG. That's right. And finally, if you'd like to check out lovely skincare, shaving, and soap products from Barrister Man. We'll talk about them more later, but you can use the code Barrister or you can use the code the dive down 15 at Barrister Man to get 15% off your first order from them. More to come on that. All right, here we are. It's cold. It's cold in September. I don't know why. We're in a giant mall. There's a roller coaster in it. Where am I? Where am I, Stan? Tell me where I am. I believe you're in the Mall of America. And where's that? In sunny Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah, it's always sunny in Minneapolis is what I heard. It's a good It's a good TV show. I've also heard that every intersection is a four-way stop sign of just very polite people who want to let you pass, but you're trying to let them pass. Traffic is at a standstill. Yeah, that's Minnesota nice, I heard. Now, I don't think the tournament was actually held at the Mall of America, but who knows? Maybe maybe there's some empty storefronts that they needed to occupy. You and I played a mall in an empty a tournament at a mall. <laughs> I was of, just going to say an empty storefront at, at, a, at a mostly empty mall in an empty storefront. Thanks to local tournament organizers here in Chicago pastime. Uh, that was literally the day before the world shut down from COVID. Maybe right. like three days before. It was a bit strange. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's not. We're not talking about pastimes. We're talking about nerd rage. Yep. And they had another nerd rage series trial tournament 
modern 10K on Saturday. We had a lot of results. You can see the results yourself on mtgmelee.com, but we're going to break it down. And by we, I mean Dave. And by break it down, I mean explain it to Stanislav. Exactly. Like he's a child. So Magic Tournaments, Stan, they have people in them. This one had 194 players, from what it looks like on MTG Melee. Um, Not quite the 300 that I think they had capacity for, but 200 is a really good, solid turnout. Um, We had a few predictions last episode going into this tournament. I think some of the big things were, we kind of thought the meta would be stable. You know, mostly as far as frequency went, we felt like in comparison to the Paris tournament that we looked at last week, that Merktide would have a better week, have more of the metagame. We also thought that Four Color would reassert itself. And finally, we expected to see up arrows in decks, next to decks, with Leyline Binding in them, since this is some, these are some of the first tournaments that have happened since Leyline Binding has entered the meta. So let's talk about it. One thing, we're going to go through and talk about the win rates, meta percentage of all of the decks that are above 2% of the meta, according to MTG Melee. We did not, unfortunately, clean the data this time, so we cannot reconcile anybody's bad deck names. I hope that people are behaving well, looking at all you jokers out there, but let's dive into it. And look, if you're misbehaving, you're not getting covered in this episode of the podcast. Not sorry. I'm not sorry at all. I will say that uh, um, it's worth noting that on the MTG Melee page, there has been some reconciliation between the names that are in the kind of like full standings where they have all the deck names and what archetypes they're listed here. And I'll explain that a little bit as we go into it. But uh, the place to start, I think, is top five decks. So let's go through the top five decks, quickly talk about their win rates, and then we can talk about things that were surprising outside of that top five of the meta. So the number one deck at this week's tournament in Minnesota, Minneapolis, was Four Color Blink. Mm-hmm. 9.8% of the meta game with a 54% win rate. Okay. So we did think that it was going to do better than it did in Paris, and this tracks, right? Because in Paris, it was sub-50. Uh, four color was sub, was sub fifty. Yes, so that is a better better performance out of four color. The thing that was the most interesting thing to me about this is that I kind of feel like this is one of the first NRG in a while where the top deck was lower than ten percent of the meta. Um, I think we had a just few barely. where it was fourteen fifteen percent, and this is just, just barely though. This is just barely. So it's essentially ten percent of the meta. I do think sure. that's still down from. 14-ish percent for some of the highs that we've had where there's been a lot of consolidation here. Agreed, agreed. And perhaps part of that is more people picking up some of these more fringier, fringe is even the wrong word, slightly more up and coming, I think is the better way to describe those decks that are potentially good against four color that we're going to start talking about in a second. Exactly. But still top dog in the, as far as the metagame goes, four color blink is it. Usually, I would say most times, is it Murktide is the number one deck by MetaShare and it is number two this time with 8.2%. 16 pilots uh, had, is it Murktide? But here's the kicker, though. Win rate of Murktide, 42%. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch, indeed. Pretty similar to what we saw with the Paris meta, where it was really pretty bad. Really bad. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. And I might start to revisit some of these win rates in an attempt to infer what happened after we go through the actual remaining 2% or above MetaShare, because I think we could start to tell a little story, piece together the puzzle of figuring out 
why is Merktide not doing so great? I have a theory, but I want to see if some of the data maybe supports it first. Yeah, I definitely have a theory as well. Third place, Azorius Hammer. I believe that this covers Azorius and Mono White Hammer as far as the actual count goes. Um, okay. Taking a look through the through the results, I tried to to see if they consolidated them. It looks to me like they did consolidate them into a single archetype. Uh, that was seven point seven seven percent of the metagame. Fifteen pilots, straight up a fifty percent win rate. Hammer decks went forty nine forty eight and one uh, in the tournament. The next deck on the list, Golgari Yagmoth, only had eleven pilots for five point seven percent of the meta. Also counted as 50%. The those decks went 40, 36, and 4 right now. And then the final deck of the top five. This was one was a little bit of a surprise to me as far as meta share goes. Amulet Titan. Hmm. 5.1% or 10 pilots, 51.78% match win rate. So just above 50% there. So there's your top five. What do you think, Stan? Yogmoth and Titan being in the top five, I actually think is pretty impressive. Those are good popular techs. Yeah. Middling results, perhaps, but I don't remember them like ever being quite this popular in energy or elsewhere. And this could be my own memory failing me, but I always feel like they're kind of like lower in the top 10. Yes. I agree with that. I mean, I think Yogmoth's been knocking on the door of the top five for a while. Amulet getting higher is a bit of a surprise. And it makes me wonder if that was some people who are longtime Amulet. Uh, amulet pilots trying to take advantage of the fact that a lot of people are trying to cut on Blood Moon. These days, or at least in theory, a lot of people are trying to cut on Blood Moon. I'm not sure if that's actually what's happening, to be honest. Um, But the number one thing to me about these top five decks is that the win rate of this portion of the meta, if you look at it, it's basically 15%, 25%. It's between 35 and 40% of the meta between these five decks. The win rate of those decks is 54%, 42%, 50%, 50%, and 51%. So this 40-ish percent of the meta, 35-40% of the meta, had an average win rate of like the high 40s, low 50s, basically. So with the exception of Merktide, doesn't that check out when a deck is more popular, but not necessarily overpowered? Or it's just like with so many people in the room, like inevitably half of them are going to start losing while the other half start winning and true i think over a big enough sample size like you find that average getting like closer and closer to the middle yeah i mean they do kind of converge towards the middle these are not um these aren't controlled for mirror matches that's that's right so it's a thing that we could do if we wanted to go to the next level with it but still none of these individually stood out and none of the decks in the top five managed to do that i i think if you look at our results over time there's usually a, a couple at this top that kind of peak up above 55 percent at least yeah and and the other thing that occurs to me is because we're talking about a 200 person tournament the top decks being in the number you know in the in the magnitude of teens yeah like we're still talking about pretty small numbers overall yeah that like the difference between eleven Yogmoth players, ten Amulet players, and the next number six deck is Burn with nine pilots. Like it's so marginal that I think if maybe even twenty more people played in this tournament, we would probably have a slightly different top five too. Yeah, potentially, potentially. But yeah, that was what was interesting to me about this top five. I mean, none of these decks feel particularly like innovative to me right now i think if you look at their list the main thing that you might see is some blink decks have picked up a couple of copies of leyline binding here and there but not even all of them are doing that honestly so these are kind of old decks mostly old cards 
kind of here doing doing their thing, not a lot of impact from Dominaria. Um, the thing that I thought we might look at next is kind of take a look at the rest of the meta and the decks that were above 55% win rate, and then the rest of the meta in a meta losers category, decks that were below 50% win rate. So kind of drawing a baseline there for these decks that were above 2% that had a better than 55% win rate. Um, pretty interesting ones here. They're small sample sizes because some of these are only had four pilots, so they would have a total of, for example, 30 matches, basically, in some cases. But the number one deck on this list to me, as far as win rate goes, is five-color creativity. 66% win rates at 3.5% of the meta. Um, that was the highest one out of this greater than 2% sample. Shocked? Surprised? Interested? Yeah, I am a little surprised, Dave, because my co-host keeps telling me how bad the deck is, even though <laughs> results suggest otherwise and people are winning tournaments with it. It's but... like um, the moment that we had that episode where we tried out creativity, where I tried out creativity, from them, it has been a slow and unceasing ascent from tier two minus deck to top table winner suddenly over the last six weeks or so. Here's what I really think about creativity. It's a combo control deck. It's not Splinter Twin, but it's like in the realm of like playing controlled cards, like playing really powerful planeswalkers that you can even afford to tap out for. And eventually like setting up a condition where you cast a spell that produces such a like untenable board presence in this case it's with our kind of cruelties but it's essentially this one card combo spell that um i think in modern's history like we see cards and decks like that often have really powerful win rates sometimes too powerful even and though i'm not saying that that's the case of creativity i think as more people pick up this deck get practice with it understand some of the different ways you can build with it and like some of the different payoffs you're going for whether it's archon or otherwise i think we're going to start to see this deck continue to prove itself as just like a format staple in today's metagame until a pretty significant shakeup whether that's like powerful new cards are added or even you know um cards removed from the format not necessarily from creativity but just in general like something cataclysmic i think would have to happen for creativity to like suddenly be banned you know, unless like Brothers War or some other upcoming standard set has a card that just like completely sh- destroys creativity that other decks can play in their sideboards. Yeah. We're going to talk about specific lists later, but um, there's some interesting stuff with uh, creativity at this point. Although the biggest thing, honestly, is that it's fully embraced being five color, which, you know, sometimes it was te- it was teamer for a while there. And now the white splash is kind of coming back really strongly mostly because of one card, and that card is Leyline Binding. So I think that this is a deck that really benefits from Leyline Binding, and having a way to deal with any type of permanent for cheap is something that the teamer versions of this deck sorely, sorely lacked. And so being able to have this and a better incentive to want to play Teferi Time Raveler, I think has really made it suddenly be something that has a lot more of a a game uh, on the ground where before you had to kind of be a stat control count, you know, try to counter spells, remand kind of deck. And now you have the ability to deal with permanence when you didn't as much before. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of like the combo control aspect of it. Lane lines binding is a killer control card. Like you're only playing it pre- reactively. Um, and I think the stronger this gets as a control deck because of cards like that, the more I, 
I can sort of anticipate this deck working its way to the top, and we're just going to continue to see it appear in more top eights and winning more tournaments outright. Yeah. I mean, it certainly has its weaknesses, right? But I think that in a field that's defined by four-color blink at the top, this deck does a pretty good job against that particular matchup. And then there's a few other kind of decks at the top that it's it's good against as well. So 66% win rate for that. And actually, not to spoil it, but this tournament was won by Aaron Miller on five-color creativity. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, we'll talk about Aaron's specific run more when we get to the top eight. So second deck on here, as far as win rate goes, so I'm going to change, go from the notes a little bit differently. Stan is Teamer Scape Shift at 63% win rates, 2% of the meta. So four pilots brought Teamer Scape Shift, and it had a 63% win rate, which is pretty interesting as well. Not a deck a lot of people are thinking about. A lot of that was led by Rodney Bedell, who came in 17th in the Swiss. And yeah, I think this is the deck that you actually tried, right? Indeed it is, and I will say when Four Color Blink is the most popular deck in this room, Teamer Scape Shift is like here to feast. Yeah, and creativity kind of too, right? So now we have a couple of decks that are having good win rates that are preying on the stuff that are at the top of the top of the meta. Great. All right, next on the list, Jeskai Breach. So Jeskai Breach had four pilots as well, including Jesse Robkin, uh, who was in tenth place. You know, leaderboard energy leaderboard leader and that deck had a 60 percent win rate across the four pilots it went people who were doing that had 18 9 and 3 record a lot of ties just guy breach a deck that i certainly could have considered picking up for this particular you know episode where you and i were talking about decks we've never got around to playing before however i think it might bear us doing a deeper investigation of somewhere sometime in the future so maybe we kind of save that one for the future but um breach is certainly on the up and up and you know jesse's long been an advocate of it and then ross merriam has picked it up and a few other notable people have also said that it's a really good deck so i i guess we shouldn't be too surprised that people are starting to pick it up a little bit in these tournaments still only four pilots but on its on its way up all right Blue-White Control is next on that list. 60% win rate for Blue-White Control. There are four pilots on Blue-White Control. From the list that I've seen, um, they are Narset Days Undoing decks. which Re- is Just across the board? Wild. From what I can tell, yeah. I didn't look them all up individually right now. D- did, did that include the one that was in third place? Yes. The top, the top eight deck by George DeVore was Narset's mm-hmm. Days Undoing. And you know what else? It's really five-color blue-eye control because it has four Leyline Binding in the deck as well. And so yeah. they are running Triomes to be able to cast Leyline Binding for one as well. And this is when, you know, when Everett was on a couple of weeks ago and was kind of like, hey, I think Leyline Binding is really good. And I, I said, well, how much do you think decks are going to start splashing Triomes just to be able to play Leyline Binding? This is the deck that I was thinking of that would really kind mm-hmm. of, this type of deck, I was think, specifically thinking Blue Eye Control, but people trying stuff like this is what I was specifically trying to hint with him was kind of like, we're going to know it's a really absurd meta-defining card if people start playing Triumphs literally only to be able to play this card, and they are. They're not splashing other cards in this deck, they're just doing this. The 60% win rate of Blue Eye Control here is incredible because historically, Four Color was a really problematic matchup and part of why we started seeing nasif wafo um jabor who's also like in that ilk of control masters like turn two days and doing is is to have this quasi combo that's just like 
does something really big to the game. doesn't necessarily end the game on the spot, but it's a way to sort of reset the advantage bar um, in such a profound way. I don't know if that's the thing that turned around the four-color matchup, if it's Leyline Binding, if it's the entire deck configuration because they're Cure decks, they're not playing Snapcaster, that kind of helps determine the type of elementals and, and, and interaction suite that they can turn to. Something has changed, and and maybe that's all also a change in the four color decks where their defenses are down to some of the tools in blue white control. I don't know. I think I think this is something worth keeping an eye on moving forward. But to have such a positive win rate in a room that was full of four color suggests that these pilots had to have been beating four color decks along the way, and I think that's kind of like a big comeback in the meta game for blue white which was like kind of struggling for a while you know we haven't been talking about that deck in the top tiers for that long yeah and certainly this deck's overall performance was buoyed by george george jabour's performance he went seven and one you know the next best pilot i saw on blue white went five and three and then there's a four three and one i think so there's three decks that have winning records which is great with it i didn't see where the fourth the fourth list was i was just taking a look quickly um but you know it's a small enough tournament that one person doing well can push these things up just a, a little bit as far as that goes uh and then the last deck that i think is interesting new and has a has a small sample club up arrow next to it is Rakdos mid-range, or if you want to call it scam, you can call it scam, but for some reason, I just want to call it Rakdos mid, <laughs> which is what they call it here. Um, that had a 59% win rate, and six pilots brought that. It was 3% of the meta. Um, certainly a deck that's been on the up and up on Magic Online. It went 25-15-2 and two in the Swiss, basically. Dan, what do you think about uh, that deck? I think we're going to talk about that deck some more, but... Uh, seems good. Seems good. Seems good and fun. All right, let's talk about the meta losers. Oh, Below no. 50% win rate that we're in this greater than 2% meta range. Sample number one on this list for me. Rhinos. For you. 38, well, it's the lowest, it's the lowest percentage, unfortunately. 38% win rate for Rhinos. And actually, I they list it on Melee as Teamer Rhinos. I couldn't actually find any Teamer Rhino deck lists. I only found four-color ones. Uh, four and five color ones and those were all kind of performing in a way that fit with a 38 percent win rate so uh, unfortunately i think that it was just a rough weekend for rhinos and kind of an average weekend for living end for what it's worth which is also in the meta share but it had a 53 percent win rate at uh with five pilots yeah yeah i think with yogmoth getting more popular the five-color approach to Rhinos actually makes that matchup worse. Where Teamer used to prey on Yogmoth, I don't think that matchup is so skewed anymore. And as a result, potentially, like, the Rhino players are just losing some free wins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By giving up on, you know, in, in your mind, it's by giving up on... Stomp, Petty Theft, a, a Dead Gone here or there. It's just, like, Fury, Leyline Binding... Fire Ice and and like maybe a couple of Dead Gone. Like, I just don't think it's enough. There you go. Burn had a 43% win rate. And like Stan said, it was the sixth most popular deck. So there was uh, nine pilots on it. They went 23, 30, and zero. No surprise that there were no draws with Burn. And then finally, uh, Grixis Death Shadow had four pilots and it was 45% win rate, also a sub 50% um, kind of rate. 
that stood out to me. So I think Grixis Shadow mirroring Murktide results actually kind of feels right just because Murktide and Shadow are more similar than they are different. And if the most popular decks in the room are four color Azorius Hammer, like I don't think Thoughtseize is doing that much for you, which is kind of like the main advantage to Death Shadow over just Murktide, right? Just like access to Thoughtseize and a one mana Tarmogoyf. A, a one man of vanilla Murktide? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's Delver, kind of. Like, that's what most people think. It's a cheap threat backed up by a counterspell. That's sort of what Murktide's trying to do, too, of course. It's just, you know, hand disruption, like you said. I will say, I saw a really spicy list over the weekend on Twitter, and I forget the name of the pilot. I'm sorry if you happen to be a listener. Someone won an RCQ with Demir Shadow and said that they were a big believer in this archetype as the place where both Murktide and Shadow should go, and it's definitely kind of like on my radar for something I'd like to come back to and try over the next couple of weeks. It was basically a uh, Shadow deck with Mur- with Murktide in it and Ledger Shredder, which was pretty cool. But let's talk about the top eight. So the top eight was Aaron Miller, as I mentioned, on five-color creativity. Aaron went undefeated in the Swiss, uh, and since Aaron also won... It's worth noting that Aaron went undefeated in the whole tournament. <laughs> he was 10-0-1, probably, I think, is what the, the end was. You know, like we said, it has Leyline binding right now, but there's a couple other interesting things in, in this deck as well, which is kind of how the deck picks up alternate ways to get Archon into play, right? So we've seen a number of creativity decks recently that have Transmogrify as a one-of or a two-of as like a backup creativity Something that's happened recently is people upping the cards that put cards in their graveyard, like a, um, you know, like Fable of the Mirror Breaker or occasionally Shadow Prophecy, though Aaron's deck didn't have Shadow Prophecy from Dominaria in it, and playing some number of persists, like a traditional reanimator strategy blending in with creativity as a way to kind of pull that one Archon that got into your graveyard back out uh, for cheap. Pretty, pretty interesting, and it seems to be something that's starting to be persistent. Um, there's no Emrakul in the sideboard of Aaron's deck, which is also interesting. So there's really not a plan B here for a different uh, threat with creativity. You're you're basically just going for Archon or that's it. Um, and the other thing I noticed is that there's a few people who are starting to pick up playing, and Aaron was one of them, and also George DeBoer was, was one of them in the sideboard, playing Hollowed Moonlight. Do you remember the card Hollowed Moonlight? <laughs> It's a white card. It is a white card. And what it says is, it's from Origins, and it is a card that I, says... I can, like, see the art. Yeah. it's It costs I, a I generic and a white. And it says, until end of turn, if a creature would enter the battlefield and it wasn't cast, exile it instead, draw a card. And this has to be... Because it doesn't work on... Like, the only things that I'm thinking of here that this works against right now are, for one thing, it would work against, like, goblins, right? Because those are Dude, tokens. Oh right? my god, it basically works against, like the whole field well it works against archons coming in off of creativity what what else does it work it doesn't work against evoke elementals though because evoke is an alternate casting cost it's not that those creatures are cast right right but if you're like feign deathing them oh right yes they leave and come back yeah so it's an anti-scam card too yeah okay it's good against persist creatures right okay um i mean i think those are the big ones like it's probably even good against like shark tokens oh true yeah you know what i mean yeah just randomly so would be interesting if after all these years 
You know, that's a card that's been out for seven years or so. Originally, people assumed that it was anti, um, anti Splinter Twin tech, essentially. But yeah, it would be fascinating if this card suddenly became actually playable, a playable modern magic card at this point in time. We'll, we'll see if it really is. Um, second place, or second seed, actually, not second place, second seed coming out of the Swiss was Nathaniel Perigo on Blue White Affinity. I think we're pretty familiar with this deck at this point. It's been it sees occasional, uh, occasional heavy results. This is you know a person who top aided with it, and this is your modern version of eight casts essentially. Although this deck actually has seven casts, but it is what it is. It's blue white. It's your Urza plus plus Urza Saga list, and you can kind of imagine what that looks like from there. Do you happen to have the eight cast win rate handy? Like I'm I'm guessing there must have only been three or fewer players because it's not in our two percent and above um i can pull it up give me one second which means nathaniel was if not the only just one of the only players we had talked about murktide being the second most popular deck in the room grixis shadow is also top 10 among popularity these acast decks are great against murktide delver style strategies period so if Nathaniel's matches, matchup spread was like fortunate. I, I mean, they have other affinity has other great matchups. Don't get me wrong, but like if if this player is like facing Murktide more than once in the tournament, I think that's actually like going to help them a lot on their path to top eight. Yeah, from what I can see, this looks like it might have been the only one. I would be surprised, but um, yeah, it's not actually there. There is a win rate for Mono Blue Affinity listed here, and that is says it's three pilots at 43% win rate, but um, this could be one where the deck name doesn't quite line up with reality. Yeah, it, well, in, in any case, like, this almost seems like it was just a great meta call for the room. You know, if you're expecting a ton of Murktide and, and it, it, you know, the eight cast players know what their other good matchups are, and I just don't, but um, this could be one of those decks, like, similar to Scapeshift, where you can just register for the right tournament if you know what's going to be popular and, and kind of just like prey on a metagame. Totally agree. All right. Third seed was George Jabur on blue white control, which we talked about. This is that, this is a Narset days undoing deck. It's also running, um, Teferi, of course, Teferi time raveler. It's got a couple of Jaces, solitude, subtlety. It's kind of what you would expect blue white control to look like these days. Um, a lot of lands. I mean, the thing that this still, really points out to me is that maybe triumphs were a mistake but we could talk about some other that some other time um no there, there's there's no maybe about it they absolutely were but this is the world we have to live in now it's over um, now there's no there's no going back yeah I, I i will say um i actually follow george on twitch really nice guy really good player worth a follow jab jabber plays a lot of control and like you can learn a lot about the ever changing landscape of blue white decks from from watching um george grind modern leagues awesome fourth seed was scott polera uh scott polera is one of the people at the top of the energy season two leaderboards we haven't talked about him too much because he's been sort of lurking outside of the top five also scott has been hanging out a lot in the dive down discord lately you know jesse is there quite frequently and scott being there too is pretty cool to kind of pick his brain about the way tournaments have, have gone you know it's awesome to see him get some more points he was on living end one of the few people at the top of the the rankings on living end this weekend 
nothing too innovative about that particular list. Um, same thing with fifth seed. Fifth seed was Samuel Nordenson on Yawgmoth. I don't think there's too much different about this particular list. I mean, certainly configured for what, the way that they thought this tournament would go. You know, there was only a single endurance, a couple of other notable things like that, but nothing too too big or surprising about this particular list. Sixth and seventh place, I think, is interesting and something that we might want to talk about for a minute. We already did talk about Scam for a minute, but in sixth, play, uh, sixth seed and seventh seed were Blake Madsen and Jonathan Perigo on Rakdos Scam. While this top eight had two Perigos, Nathaniel in, in second seed and Jonathan in seventh seed. Whoa. I wonder, I wonder if they know each other. I wonder. I wonder. There might be East Coast and West Coast Perigos, though, so they, they we famously they don't get along. Um, you know, this deck we've been talking about a lot lately it's cool, right? Like it's starting to feel like it's powerful. It's starting to, it's nice to see a home for, like I kind of said last week for blood crypts to start existing in modern again. Uh, other than Grix's death shadow. And yeah, so black um, leaf cliff too. Yeah. It's oh nice yeah. To get, like some red, black fast man. Actually, that's the big one is that black leaf cliff has not had a home for like a real home for like a year. And so this is, this is cool to see, but if you haven't played this deck, you know, you pitch your elementals, you play a card like Un- Undying Malice or, or something like that to kind of br- to play the evoke cost. It behaves like ephemerate. It brings it back from your graveyard, comes back in, you get another comes into play trigger. And then in the case of Fury, you also have a giant double striking threat on turn one, potentially. In the case of Grief, you may have just taken two cards away from your opponent. Um, outside of that, these decks kind of play out like you would expect a mid-range deck to play out these days. They do general. They do run Ragavan. Their two drops also generally have Delphi Voidwalker in them, so it's a pretty cool kind of harkens back to the first list that Aspiring Spike was playing around with a little bit, except for instead of going in hard on Luris, they're now going in hard on evoke uh, abusing evoke elementals only difference between the sixth and seventh place list really that i could tell substantially is that madsen was running two croxa and one liliana of the veil whereas perigo um jonathan perigo was running fable of the mirror breaker main which is pretty interesting to see in a deck that's really just playing it for value and not trying to take a huge advantage of the discard part of it necessarily so um either way this is a cool deck, and actually, the other finalist, along with Aaron Miller, was Blake Madsen, uh, who ended up losing to uh, Aaron in the finals. And then finally, the eighth seed was Joe Bernal, well-known Chicago grinder control player. Joe was on Four Color Blink with Yorian. Uh, this is the Traverse version. Do we still think that we need to take some power out of Yorian at this point, or do we think that the meta actually managed to solve itself a bit? What do you think? <laughs> It's tough. It's tough. Most popular deck in the room. It still had a win rate north of 50. It's still super annoying. Still super annoying. Games take forever. Like, look at how many draws we've talked about over the course of this tournament report. You know, I have a feeling this deck, decks like this are partially responsible for that. You're responsible for all the draws. I still think that maybe not... In a like Hogak Tibbles trickery kind of way to answer your question, like that's not the type of metagame we're in where there's like this stupid problem card that shouldn't exist. I think there's something broken about what type of resources are available to modern players, and the Yorian decks are 
emblematic of that. And they're not the only ones who get to benefit from this, like creativity does too. And I, I think I've been very careful to say, like, I'm not saying like creativity is too strong or like something needs to be done with this deck, but just like these like Renin Six soupy decks that like play control, tons of free spells, and just like weirdly will like generate like an insane amount of mana advantage on turn five or six out of nowhere sometimes like something is amiss there yeah and i think i think the format could be made more fair whether it's yorian or renin six or omnath or teferi or triomes like there's something that i in my opinion is a little too pushed for the format that makes it harder to like engage in a one-to-one game for very long um but you know, thanks for putting me on the spot, Dave. I mean, I, I have complicated feelings about it now. It it has I certainly was kind of like, we gotta get rid of Yorian at one point in time recently. I, I kind of feel just sort of design philosophy still opposed to companions generally at this point, though I, I did enjoy playing with them for as long as they were legal in different places. Um I still in my heart kind of feel like that card just needs to go and we should see what happens to the meta, but I liked them more when you didn't have to pay three. Well, sure, we all you know did. What I mean, like, I, but I almost feel like more of them were playable, and it was like the rules changed that kind of made it a Luris versus Yorian game, right? At least from my perspective, it, are, it already was. It was just like more of them. More of them were were kind of playable, I guess. I don't know. Yes, I'm just not yes. a fan of that at this point. I mean, it's been I don't two and a half years. Yeah, no. it's time to move yeah. on. I, I, I kind of think, just if I'm going to make bold predictions that maybe one day I can point to to, you know, call out how smart I am. Yeah, we forget the ones that don't come true, Stan. Give us, give <laughs> us, your, give us your call. Um, every year something happens to Modern in like January or February, almost like, like okay. clockwork. Yeah. Luris was banned in February. The previous January was, you know, January of the previous year is when Cascade and, and, um, was dealt with i can sort of see like yorian renin six and maybe something else going in q1 of next year like would we be surprised no uh, we unless wouldn't. something I, like wildly changes in the format like i kind of feel like those two cards and, and and maybe even like expressive iteration maybe but if you i don't know if you look at the delver win rates this year like expressive iteration doesn't seem like the problem but the Soupy decks are playing that too. So it's like Yorian, Renin 6, Expressive Iteration, get out of here. Like, I can see the format maybe getting a little bit less, I don't even know the word to describe it, annoying. I think it's still pretty fun. You know, I don't I don't grind these tournaments though. So lots lots of annoying things are fun. Right. Rick and Morty? Mm, sure. <laughs> sure. Rick and Morty I, fans? I know what you mean. Yeah. Rick and Morty fans, we know you're out there on listening to our podcast. We love you. Uh, Listen, I've, little, I've seen every kinda, episode, so kinda. calling the kettle black here. Great. Like we said, um, the tournament was won by Aaron Miller on Creativity versus Blake Madsen on Scam. Somehow did we... Now, what do you think we said last week about these two decks? Did we say that we, we were like, oh yeah, the finals are going to be these two decks? Did we say that we were hoping to see high-end finishes from these two? That's what I felt like I said, was that these are the two decks I said I wanted to see do well. I think... I think it's just it's amazing how little I can retain a week later. We're also not gonna go and, check the tapes, just to be clear, everybody. We're not gonna take the time. No, no. Yeah. Someone from our Discord is, of course. Yes. I'm sure, and we'll post the timestamp as 
as they're known to do. I think we said that this tournament is going to be won by one of those two. And I think we, of Scam, particularly said, like, this tournament, in this tournament, like, Scam is the deck to watch out for. Yeah. Because it's, like, poised for a big paper finish. Yep. And I think it was. It just turned out it didn't quite have the win rate that some of these, that creativity did in particular, and some of the other up and coming decks do. I will say, it Nor was. Nor the pretty, representation. Yes, exactly. Well, it had the same. It had just a little bit less representation than than creativity. Most of these decks that have up arrows next to them or good win rates are all um, kind of in that two to three percent of the metagame. I will say that list of decks that were small in the metagame with big win rates from roguish decks that we know are kind of well established. Again, that list was creativity, Rakdos mid, Jeskai breach, Teamer scape shift, and blue eye control. If all of those decks happen to be reasonably things to bring to a magic tournament again that would be pretty cool you know these are five decks that we haven't been talking about a huge amount lately certainly creativity and scam have been talked about breach has been in different capacities but these are all decks that if they really were to break into um common occurrence it would shake up the metagame in modern quite a bit so that was kind of exciting to see all those decks here potentially making an impression yeah, all I'll say is like I'm doing that thing where I'm just like counting up how much would it cost me to build scam, and it's maybe twenty bucks. Yes, well, I I built it. So for what it's worth, Stan and I played some some modern the other night at my house, and I was sleeving up a deck beforehand, and I realized that I had everything for scam already ready, and so when he showed up, I was like, "Guess what deck I'm playing?" Turn one black leaf cliffs, and he was like, "What?" But. Yeah, I I like how Jonathan Perigo's deck, like four terminate in modern, four terminate, yeah, and and I've got those those full art terminates from like player rewards or whatever. Whoa, that alone I feel like is worth putting in like twenty bucks for some Malakir Rebirths, Feign Deaths, and a Hidetsuku consumes all on the sideboard. You probably don't even need the Hidetsuku. I tell you what, I can, I can let you borrow a Hidetsuku if you'd like to. I have four of them. I'm never going to need four of them. Uh, also, just let me just, have one. I just noticed borrow. That Jonathan has an Obnixilis in it in the sideboard too. Check it out. Well, well, I mean, no deck is perfect. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure we can find something better to put in that place. Liliana the Veil. All right, let's quickly talk about Pioneer. Although, hold on, wait a second. Obnixilis casualty plus Feign Death. That's a combo, isn't it? Yes. Broke it. Yeah. Broke it. Put that ob main deck. Yeah, exactly. We've moved it. Why is it a one-off in the side? All right. Are you up for talking about Pioneer for a second before we get on to our, our stuff? Of course. All right. The Sunday event here was Pioneer 5K. Going to just go through the metagame really quickly. We were able to use a Twitter metagame provided by someone named Joe Kleckner. That's at J-E Kleckner on Twitter, uh, who tagged Fire Shoots for Value. And of course, when you tag Fire Shoots for Value in your breakdown, it goes out to everybody on Twitter all the time. Uh, so let's talk about the interesting thing going on with the um, the metagame in Pioneer. There's one insight that Joe kind of pointed out that I'd love to talk about. So the overall metagame of this tournament was uh, Mono Green Devotion. 18.2% of the metagame was Mono Green Devotion, followed by Rakdos Mid at 14.5%, Grease Fang at 10.9%. I think that Obzon Grease Fang is the popular one now, if I'm if I'm remembering right, but we'll see kind of where things go. Mono White Humans at 9.1%, Blue White Control at 6.4%, Mono Red at 4.5%. And just to be arbitrary, I'm going to stop at this next 4.5% with Is It Phoenix? 
Uh, why not? There was also Esper Control and Elves at 4.5%. That's more than 75% of the meta right there between 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 decks. But four decks made up the top 50% of the meta. Two decks in this in this meta are more than the other category, which for me is my arbitrary place where I start having bells about modern anyway, but I, I don't think Pioneer's able to be as diverse as modern at this point in time, maybe sometime in the future. But so what do you think about these as being the top five decks, let's say, Stan, five, six decks? Kind of just looks like Pioneer, right? Yeah, Greasefang being that popular in paper, I I think is actually a little bit surprising. Um, I don't think we've ever seen it be quite this popular, but maybe after um, Dominaria, it got new tools that I just haven't been keeping up with to call out. Um, like, I guess what I'm saying, like, this seems like a pretty big drop for Is It Phoenix and Blue White Control, just on the popularity scale. Um, Mono, you, like, I've not been keeping up with this format enough to say when Mono U Spirits dropped off, but like it is just down there. Yeah, Blue has, been, has been on the downswing for a while now, unfortunately, much to my chagrin. But yeah, I mean, like to me, Pioneers is kind of like a, a glorified standard format. Like it's going to be Mono Green versus Rakdos for a while, but like I think things like Grease Fang, Humans, Blue Eye Control, Blue Eye Control is probably the third one in that like top trifecta, in my opinion. But like, Greasefang, Humans, Monored, Phoenix, and other stuff. Spirits for Idols, for instance. Like, I can kind of see those maybe trying to nip at the heels of the top three decks. Yep. So, for what it's worth, Obs on Greasefang was third seed going into the uh, the top eight, piloted by Matthew Ruck. Maybe we'll we'll read through the uh, the top eight really quickly once we get through this meta breakdown. But what's interesting about Obs on Greasefang is that it is completely kind of stock as far as it goes. There's not any new Dominaria cards in here. There is like two Rotting Regisaur, which is a wild thing. I didn't even know that that made it into Grease Fang. But um, yeah, it doesn't seem to be too much new stuff in here. It just seems to be that maybe the grind of Seder Wayfinder and uh, you know Inta Can't Stay Away is something that people want to really kind of do as much as they can. Um, all right, so that was the top. The thing that was really interesting that Joe pointed out in his Twitter thread is that the conversion rates into the top 32 of those decks are actually pretty different. And so the deck that converted into top 32 the most was Rakdos Mid. So Rakdos Mid was 21.9% of the top 32, which means 7 out of 32? Oh my God, six out of 32. <laughs> Let me get a calculator out. But at any rate, that's pretty interesting. The next deck to convert the most was Mono White Humans, which is a deck that has been getting more and more popular as time has gone on. Uh, in Pioneer, it seems to be the premier aggro deck basically in the format right now. There's a couple of other decks that are on their way up, but Humans is where it's at. And the Mono Green Devotion was only 12.5% of the top 32. So it was down from 18.2% of the overall meta to 12.5%. Uh, Grease Fang also was 12.5% of the top 32. So that actually converted at a slightly higher rate than it was in the Swiss. So I think the big thing here to think about is that Devotion did not deliver kind of on, on being the top deck in the format. 
in the same way that Rakdos managed to, and even that humans managed to, really. I wonder if part of that has to do with the fact that, like, Rakdos is just this mid-range attrition deck. Devotion is this rampy combo beatdown deck, and one of them is easier to hate on, plan for, and beat up on. Could be. It's tough for me to know. You know, Pioneer is like a format that I enjoy playing when I do, and we pay kind of like one eyeball worth of attention on it. But I've realized today, especially when I was trying to play Monogreen Devotion, that I really don't have a great handle on like the sideboard tech in certain matchups and what's really effective and why you would configure your decks a certain way in the format in the way that I do in a much more passable but equally amateurish way in modern. Uh, why don't we quickly go through the top eight, just because I thought that the top eight was pretty cool. Um, number one, rank going into the top eight with a six and one record actually was Jesse Robkin on Mono White Humans. Number two. Oh, hey, Va- Jesse. Yeah, exactly. Jesse, another big weekend. First in, in this tournament in the Swiss, 10th in the in the um, modern one. Vox Good Howland. at magic. Yeah, exactly. Well-established, good at magic. Number two going into the the uh, top eight was Vox Howland on Is It Phoenix, followed by Matthew Ruck on Obs on Grease Fang, Will Kowalczyk on Rakdos Token. So this is more of your sacrifice kind of deck, I'm assuming, looking at the list right here. No, no, no this is just mid-range. This is mid-range. mid-range deck. Yeah. Hmm. Don't know why it's called Tokens. Then uh, Rakdos mid-range was after that as well. Number five, Eric Hennig. This is definitely a mid-range, mid-range version of the deck. Number six, a deck that you might love, Stan, Golgari Elves. Sixth place. What do you think about this list compared to the stuff that you tried last week on our Lords episode? I am look, I'm reading over this de- deck list now. A lot of Jaspera Sentinel in here seems pretty okay. A lot of Shaper Sanctuary post board seems really important against the Rakdos, Rakdos decks in particular. Yeah. Um, even like this one of Lair of the Hydra is interesting as just a late game plan B if you're losing to Wraths. Um, I mean, look, it's a good aggro deck. This person was fast enough enough of the times to to make top eight. It's not, I think, the evidence we need to say, like, I need to revisit this deck to to change my opinion of it. Yeah. Was the deck that you were playing, did it have Nykthos in it, too? I didn't remember you talking about yes, that last I, week. Yeah, I, I, I played three Nykthos, yes. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason not to, right, here, so totally makes sense. There, There is a couple reasons not to, and that's because, like, a lot of your cards are just a single green pip. Not all. You know, Elvish Clan Caller, Steel Leaf Champion, um, those are... Uh, in Circle of Dreams Druid, like those are like really good with Nykthos on the board. But I don't know, like you're only playing 19 lands and you're playing eight mana dorks. So, like, sometimes you get in this awkward position where you find yourself with um, Elvish Mystic and a Nykthos and nothing else and you have to ship it back. So, that really stinks, of course. Um, when other, in other cases, like especially post board, you know when you can keep a one lander with a mana dork because the likelihood of it eating a fatal push or a shock or something goes down. Um, like against mono green, for instance, like I'm not particularly worried about my my mana dorks dying quickly. Um, so like Nykthos is so good that I guess you have to, but like sometimes you find yourself in this really awkward position where it's not even like making that much mana and it's only making green mana that you can't spend on a shaman or some of your sideboard cards. 
So uh, look, proud of Ricky. Deck looks sweet. Um, I don't think it's necessarily great though, but good players can do well with, you know, average to above average decks. Yep. Seventh seed going to the top eight. George Jabour again on Azoria's control in Pioneer. Did it. How, how do these people have the mental energy? That uh, Jesse, George, others, like, when I'm done with, like, a six-round competitive REL tournament, like, my brain is fried. I'm in a rotten mood the next day. You know, I feel like I just took the SATs. And I never took the SATs. You um, never took ACT, the SATs. Man. <laughs> Oh, ACT. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, And it's just like, to to get back-to-back top eights or like back-to-back top 16s even, just like so impressive to me. They're just locked in right now, you know? They're locked in. Not me. I'm locked out. I lost my keys on the drive over. Last one, Larry Fields. Uh, Larry Fields has popped up in a lot of these energy tournaments as well. Mono Blue Spirits in eighth place. Um, So there you go. The addition of combat research in Mono Blue Spirits, I've I've heard people talking about this as like just another good curious obsession. I mean, it's basically curiosity um, that stipulates combat damage, which is irrelevant. It does have this extra line of text. Um, as long as enchanted creature is legendary, it gets plus one, plus one, and has ward one. This doesn't have any legendary creatures, though, so I guess that's just flavor text. Yeah, exactly. I'm kind of surprised to see that card in here. Is curiosity it's just not, like just not legal in in Pioneer? I thought for sure curiosity would be, but I I guess, guess not. not. But well, what's also interesting, like you're not playing Mana Beak, you're only playing Gaslight Snare and Slip Out the Back. Yeah, and and, there, and a Spell Pierce. So if anything, it just makes your Gaslight Snares that much better. Yeah, there's been a number of decks that um over the last few months that had kind of gotten rid of the Mana Leak kind of versions and were just playing, you know, the one. Uh, just got guys laid snare anyway pioneer still looking interesting the the last thing i would say is um the same twitter thread from joe kleckner has he actually went through and tabulated the win rates for all the decks as well one thing that's really interesting is rectos mids win rate was 57 percent overall mono blue spirits win rate was 62 percent is it Phoenix was 62%, Bant Humans was 64%, and Enigmatic Incarnation. There was one person on Enigmatic Incarnation, and their win rate was 71.43%. They went five and two, so they had a 70% win rate. Bam. Um, but some of these ones that were bigger, you know, bigger sample sizes, like Rakdos being almost 60 with 60 people, um, Monoway Humans was 55% with with 10 pilots. Pretty interesting to see those two kind of like emerging at the top. Mono Green Devotion, 46% win rate with 20 pilots. Yeah, but like, look at Elves down here. Elves, 43%. Like, that feels right to me. Band Spirits, really struggling. Um, Grease Fang, only 52%. And I had mentioned when we were talking about the meta share that like, Grease Fang being, what was it, the third most popular deck was surprising to me just because like we haven't seen it performing that highly in paper, especially. Um, and the data seems to support kind of my hunch. Um, I, I, I will say like Mono Blue Spirits, 62%. Like I think I wrote it off a little too early there. Like It still has a room to, to kind of prey on a little bit, especially if Mono Green is the most popular deck in the room. Yeah. I mean, it's still one of my favorite decks to play in this format, but... Um... 
not as much favorite as Rakdos mid is. So that's kind of still where I am, although it's getting to be kind of just annoying to everybody. I think that what's essentially Jund is so good in this format. But anyway, Pioneer looking good. And we'll probably increase our focus on Pioneer a little bit, a little bit closer as we get uh, closer to DreamHack since RCQ season is coming to an end, you know, and we're planning to go down there, cover the tournament, have some fun, all that kind of stuff. Before we wrap up this NRG weekend of a section, you want to talk a little bit about just like next steps from here? Like, what do we think is the play for people engaging either formats? What do we as players maybe want to take from this? Is there anything that we as podcasters want to take from this about like what we want to look at on the show? I kind of feel like we need someone in addition to Dave to play creativity. I'd love to get like some some more minds on it, challenge each other's experiences and expectations, try to get a little closer to the truth about why this deck has been doing so well in general and, and what are some of the best ways to, to play and pilot it. Yeah, I mean, I really want to... I've acknowledged that I've had problems getting that deck to work. And so I would love an episode where all of us play it at some point in the future. That would be great. I'd love to try to get a friend onto the podcast with us to help us with that episode. Maybe if we could get Zach Ryle on at some point, you know, to talk about it, that would be really cool. If you're out there, Zach, I also would love to do a dive down into scam. We've talked about it a number of times and I think now, now might be the time to do it. I mean, for me, I, I just am excited in modern that there are these new-ish decks that are kind of emerging after a bit of a lull, right? Which I think is cool. And, you know, they're not all decks that I might play. You know, Jeskai Breach is a deck that I certainly could have tried for this episode on decks that we've never played before. And that could have been a fun thing to hear me Keystone Cop my way through a league with uh, Breach. But that's kind of where I'm at. I think in Pioneer, as we start thinking more and more about... The next couple of months or DreamHack in particular, I think that we'll just keep an eye on what Rakdos is doing and if any other decks emerge to kind of fight Rakdos at this point. But with the addition of Shieldred and some other stuff, like that deck is just looking stronger every day. I'll also be curious to see if Mono Green comes back, but we can talk a little bit more about Mono Green in my section. What are you what are you thinking about? Um yeah, I want to try creativity to spin. I've never actually played it in modern. I used to play it a ton in like arena formats. Yeah. Never, never in Pioneer, but it was. I think I played in in both Historic and Explore, but I haven't turned on Arena in, in what feels like months now. So that must have been a long time ago. Um, and it being a Run and Six deck, I think, is really interesting to me. Like Arceus Dota tweeted something over the weekend. For those who don't recall, Arceus Dota is like a very good Rhino player. Recently won a, a big tournament over there on on Rhinos. Like as soon as Leyland Binding became paper legal, basically, and he had tweeted something to the tune of. You know, you pretty much have to play Run and Six right now to be competitive in Modern. And maybe just like exploring some decks, especially creativity through that lens of like, is Run and Six the or one of the most important cards in the format? I think could be a pretty cool lens and and, and analysis. Um, Scam is hot. Yeah. Scam is so hot right now. Yeah. We can't, we can't dive into it without Shane. We need Shane. We can, we can play creativity without Shane. We cannot play Scam without Shane. I almost... Yeah, I think Shane would almost think it was a kindness we did him if we played a deck like Creativity without him. So maybe that's what we should do next week, Stan, is just talk about Creativity. All right, get at us in the comments if you want us to talk about Creativity next week, for real. Um, Yeah, I mean, one thing that was interesting is that we played, when you were over at my house over the weekend, we played 
some matchups and the two decks I had were five color creativity and scam, like I mentioned. And the scam versus Murktide matchup was was pretty interesting, actually, to kind of like work your way through. Felt like it was pretty even um in a lot of ways and kind of fun, fun interactive magic. Uh before we go, we're gonna check into the energy leaderboard really quickly. I think the biggest news about what happened about the season two leaderboard is that Jesse Robkin locked up an invite to the championship event, uh guaranteeing at this point that she'll be one of the top two people in points when this season comes to an end. Um, she came in 10th in the modern event, like we said on Breach, and then played into the top four of Pioneer. Um, so after Saturday, she had 85 points, and that's when Energy reached out and said, okay, qualified for the championship event. Then she went on to top four, <laughs> the Pioneer event as well. And I think the unofficial total right now is 100 points for season two. So you're in. Congratulations. That, that's awesome to see. The, the, another big mover is Scott Polera with his top eight. You know, we mentioned that he has been lurking around kind of just outside the top five. He's now in fourth place in the season two leaderboard with 63 points. Um, I think that given that the two people in between them, which is uh, Max Kamenowski and Connor Mullally are in between Jesse and Scott on the leaderboard, I think that means that right now, if the season was to stop, Scott would get the second at-large qualification, but we want to check with Norm about that. That's just how I think that the invites move down. And then Joe Barnell went from 20th place to 9th place on the leaderboard, but Joe is already queued because he was the champion last year in energy, so he already has a queue into the um, the championship event from there. Uh, most of the rest of the board had similar ranks, smaller moves, people kind of staying right around where they were. And so, um, you know, it's a cool, cool to see a couple of big moves, but the rest of the kind of field is sort of consolidating around the people who are really having success over the last couple of weeks. Next energy event is October 22nd in newark ohio stan do you want to drive to newark ohio with me what do you think uh, have you been uh ohio? yes it's just outside of columbus not is it just like the it's mundelein like th- of ohio i or think is that all be. of ohio is the mundelein of ha, the midwest easy, easy. <laughs> don't talk about my homeland like that my guardians are going to the playoffs um the yeah it's it's about 30 miles outside of columbus it is a trip from chicago i'll tell you it's like seven hours to drive to columbus from chicago so it's it's farther than it seems to the middle of ohio there but the main event is teams pioneer modern legacy 10k on saturday it's a team event and then the sunday event is a modern 5k is there no way to fly can't we like fly into a city and drive for a few minutes to columbus yeah we could but we're saving, come on, you and me are saving up all our points to be able to go to DreamHack, unfortunately. And uh, Dude, there is another event. I don't have points. There is another event in uh, Chicago coming up as well for energy. And I imagine that's one that we'll be trying to go to as well. Yes, that's either November, December. It's the weekend after Thanksgiving. It's like November 26th. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. right. Um. It's it's actually the Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend, Saturday Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend, if I recall, and that's back in Mundelein Modern Main Event. I'm like all but guaranteed to be there. I've actually already told my family I'm going to be there, and they're like, "Whatever, we're going to be eating turkey, so leave us alone." Yeah, more turkey for us. Yep, exactly. All right, well, this is fun. It was a long breakdown, like we said. Energy is a great series. Like we said many times, we think they're saving paper magic. We hope you can be a part of it if you are close to the tournament. Right now, we're going to take a break, though. 
hop over to some of the stuff that Stan and I have been doing lately. So please stay with us. All right, so this is going to be a first for Dive Down content. We're going to do an unboxing. I recently received a package from our friends over at Barrister and Man. Hold on, let me smell this cardboard. It smells, the cardboard smells good. Now, now, David, can you attest, this box is completely sealed. It is. We have no totally idea what's taped. in Stan's box. I couldn't wait. I opened my box. But we'll talk about that depending on what's in Stan's. So I grabbed my Swiss Army knife. Let's cut this open. Oh, yeah. I've, I've always been curious about the unboxing genre because I've heard that that's how you can be a millionaire. It's just like opening boxes on camera. But maybe I would settle for just like a couple thou for opening boxes on mic. There you go. I mean, that's what we're working towards, really. This is this is taped on multiple sides, so I have to, I have to cut open the sides as well. Okay, okay. As soon as I open it, it's just like all these fragrances and aromas, they enter the nostrils as soon oh, as yeah. it hits your lips. All at once. All right, here, I got Muirwood soap. Hey. You got the Muirwood? I got Muirwood soap, too. One of the new set, one of the new fragrances from Barrister and Man. It's, it's earthy, piney. It kind of smells like the woods, but like on a, on like a dewy autumn day, kind of like Walden Pond. I, this is going to make you smell like Thoreau, if Thoreau bathed. Or, you I know, John. Probably, did he bathe? John Muir who it's named after as well, who is one of the initial uh, environmental advocates in America, led to the founding of the Sierra Club. I don't think he was literally the founder of the Sierra Club, but there is a very famous uh, Redwood area called Mirror Woods. Hey, check it out. All right, I got another soap. Leviathan. Leviathan? Yep. How would you describe this one? So I'm going to open mine right now to get full access to the scents. This one is a bit more kind of floral to me. And a little bit kind of smoky in a way. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is. It's smoky, almost like a like a a fire pit, like yep. burning logs in your yard. Yep. Mm. Kind of herbal. That's nice. That's definitely it's, a it's a I musk. Like. Yeah. You know, like this this has some musk vibes. Yeah. That smells nice. So here's some a couple interesting additions. We've heard about these. We've talked about these. We got samples here. That's right. Shaving soap samples and and. You know, if you've never used a shaving soap, the difference between a shaving soap and a shaving cream is shaving soap is this solid. You have to get it wet. And then usually you will use like a brush to brush your face to get your face all lathered up. And then you shave it off. And, you know, once your face is lathered, it it essentially looks the same as like putting shaving cream on your body. This is like a little bar of soap. Yep. It's a one ounce sample of some of their their shaving soap. So if you want to try it, um, you can get a sample on their website right now of Murray Wood, Leviathan, or Cologne Russe for $6. It's for one ounce of the soap. If you want to test it out and it comes in a nice little package, and then you can um, you can try out all these great new scents that we, we have. So it looks like Stan and I got the same packages, which is great. And by the way, again, I'm a huge fan of the bar soap. I use the bar soap all the time. I know it's not oh, the yeah. shaving soap. Stan and Shane do the shaving. I just do the bathing over here. But I do love the beard oil and the hand and body soap, and it is great. Yeah, I do both. I have one last thing here. So I got the Leviathan and the Muirwood shaving soap samples. Excited to try these. I'm guessing you don't need a brush with the samples. You can just kind of lather it up, get your hands all lathered and rub it on your face or just rub the, the bar on your face or any part of your body that you're, that you're shaving. Yep. I also got some candies. Did you get candy? Yep. Yes, I did. And let me tell you, I already ate both of them. They're these nice coffee candies that Will threw into the the package and they are they're great. Delightful. 
All right, so the last step of this unboxing is a taste test. Latte candy. We've never eaten on Mike before, but Shane's not here, so. We can't. He can't stop us. Mm. He also can't stop us from talking about Barrister and Man for what I think is like seven minutes. <laughs> Listen, it's worth it. It is. I got to tell you, Leviathan is great. Check out these new, new, new fragrances. Um, like we talked about last week, they also now offer refills. So if you want to make sure that you can reuse your shaving soap container without having to get a whole new plastic thing, you can go ahead and talk to them about getting that. And then keep an eye on New Sense. The, um, the Four Horsemen that we talked about last week is, is coming back, uh, coming out soon. Uh, go check it out, barristerandman.com, where if you use the code the dive down 15, you'll get 15% off your first order. Go support Will. And by supporting Will, support us. Thank you so much. All right. So since we expected the energy results to consume the bulk of this episode, we decided that a nice way to round out the final portion of the show would be with some play experience challenging ourselves to try out a few decks for the first time and basically share some of those experiences that we've had in those games. And to be honest, this was kind of a tough challenge for me. And it, maybe this is a good problem to have because on the one hand, my, my only criteria for myself was I just wanted to play something that was arguably good. Things that we're seeing in tournament results. It didn't necessarily have to be a tournament winning deck, but just something that is respectable and, and people would recognize by name. And thanks, perhaps in part to the podcast, I've played a lot of different decks. So it got kind of hard to actually like narrow it down to something that I've actually never tried. Dave, how slim were your pickings? Like, did you have to struggle at all to find a deck to that you've never tried? I mean, not really. Like we said, I decided to do Mono Green Devotion. Uh, I had played that deck on Arena formats, you know, with not Nykthos. So not really Devotion, just like Mono Green Ramp. But um, yeah. I, it wasn't that hard. There's there's a lot of different decks across the formats that I guess I haven't really tried. I think you were just looking for ones that you were going to be excited by, and so you needed to find car decks with blue cards in it that you hadn't tried before, and that's where it gets harder. That's There's something to that. I mean, I wasn't necessarily looking for blue cards, but yes, I wanted to be excited to try yeah. something. For me, I was like, I'm going to try something I clearly hate. Yeah, I probably should have done that. Otherwise, there were no like former rules to this experiment. This is me and Dave just trying to figure out how to plan an episode. And we decided any deck, any format, as long as it was to some extent new to us, as it happens, I picked a modern deck that has done well in some high-profile tournaments recently. Maybe isn't exactly a format fixture, but it's one that people talk about. Dave opted for one of the bigger decks in Pioneer. Yeah, Something that's really important for us to to kind of get some exposure to, especially because we've been talking about it and we'll continue to talk about it in the future, I suspect. It's not going anywhere. Dave played Mono Green. I played Scape Shift. I'm going to go first. I was taking notes while I was playing. I only did one league. So I'm going to casually refer to my section as five lessons learned playing Scapeship. Oh, that's funny because that's my section is actually five things I learned playing Mono Green Devotion for the first time, inspired by the goblins, the way they approached goblins last week. Oh, that I I wasn't even thinking about that when I did this. Um, And the specific Scapeshift deck I picked up is a shout out to one of my internet boyfriends, G. Ryan Donkin who's been doing well with uh, Scapeshift, a.k.a. Teamer Control. And let me just like explain this deck really quick. The thing that drew me to it in the first place is that I've just never resolved Scapeshift before. I've, I've never cast Scapeshift. 
never tried like setting up big valicate plays really. So it seemed like this is a deck that people talk about as a metagame choice to beat up on four color and maybe other strategies. Figure I'd give it a shot. I was also drawn to the Renin Six package here. You know, I keep hearing how important it is to the format. I mentioned in the previous section that, you know, playing a Renin Six deck seemed like a good approach. Um, but otherwise, this deck is Lightning Bolt, Bolt Girl Spiral, Fire Ice, one of my oldie but goodies, Remand. It's a wow. full four of Remand. Well, Remand. It, I mean, it is a combo control deck. Did I ever so. tell you about the time that I traded a Force of Will for a playset or Remands when Remand was like $20 a piece? And then it immediately got reprinted Dave. three weeks later. Yeah. Dave. Brutal. WTF. Um, all right. It's got a place at a Dry to the Lysian Grove, a few Arbore- Arboreal Grazers, and then Expressive Iterations and Run and Six. I'm not going to go into the sideboard. And then, you know, we've got three Valakit main deck. Like, this is this is Scape Shift, but it's not Titan Shift. It's kind of just, let's play good teamer cards, try to ramp out early with things like Growth Spiral to get lands on the board, Arboreal Grazer as well. And then even if you don't have, like, the perfect suite of mountains out, Dry to the Leasing Grove solves that problem for you. But even if you don't draw dry it or it's answered... Being able to cook with run and six every turn can eventually get to the point where you can set up like a big scape shift play. So I'm going to go through um, my observations as well as my matchups. I register scape shift, a lands matters mm-hmm. deck, and then round, round one opponent red green Ponza. Yeah, rough matchups to start the new league with. I went o two. I was able to cast scape shift a few times. But as I mentioned, it was essentially my first time casting Scapeshift, and I quickly learned that in this deck, you can't just, quote, cast Scapeshift. Scapeshift is not something you cast on four, just willy-nilly. I did it! If you want to do anything meaningful with it. <laughs> I did it! <laughs> At that point, it actually basically does nothing, except just change up what lands are on the board. And... and you know, here's some just my stream of conscious moments and the thoughts. It kind of felt a bit closer to indomitable creativity than I expected because you really need to set up a board state. And even though it does cost four to mana to cast, you don't really want to cast it unless you have, in this case, six lands out or so, which in turn makes cards like Dryad, Grow Spiral, or in some cases, Explore appears in these decks. Very important to just get there as quickly as possible. And they support your, you know, your combo plan in terms of just like setting up that big eventual play. And after match one, I wrote, this makes me wonder if moving forward, I should try to approach this as a control deck first and foremost, rather than a combo deck and focusing on maintaining parity or if possible an advantage until I identified that the coast is clear to cast escape shift for just this one card, one turn kill spell. Lesson learned, don't cast escape shift on four. You should actually like know that you're about to win if you're going to do it. Match two, red, black scam. I went O2. My notes here are very brief. I messed up Scapeshift again. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll figure out how to play it. Also, I got Blood Moon in this how game. Much, I got Blood Moon back to back. How much game, does it so. hurt you to just be playing all these decks that just lose to Blood Moon all the time right now, since Blood Moon is one of your favorite cards? It hurts a lot, Dave. Hurts my soul. It's it's just one of those things that just to harken back very, very briefly to the energy top eight, like Red Black Mid being a Blood Moon deck. I wonder if that's one of the things that it's making it 
good mm-hmm. now in this soupy Ren and Six lane line binding wherever possible format. Yeah. I think it's definitely possible. I also just keep imagining you as the Wolverine meme where he's looking at a picture and then you see the reverse angle of him. Yeah. The picture's just Blood Moon. That's you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the error I made here was just like reading the card explains what the card does. And I did pick up like, oh, I can't cast Cape Shift on four. Does that mean I cast it on five? <laughs> that doesn't work either. <laughs> You're like, wait, there's one, at least one more. I got to do it. I got to go at least one more. Can I cast it on seven? Nah. I, I, I'm thinking, I guess you can cast it on five if you have Dryad out, because your Valakit is also a mountain. So they see each other? Because you get more than one Valakit, right? That's the thing? Ideally, yes. Um, but at this point, I was like, okay, from now on, it's no later than six, or at least having six lands on the board. In match three, paired against Amulet Titan, oh, 2-0, baby. More lands. More lands, yeah. So my initial question here is, am I faster than they are? And at this point, I felt like I was sort of, started, sort of starting to figure it out. Um, and in fact, even won the match with Scape Shift. You don't really have good alternative win conditions. Like, this is a Scape Shift deck through and through. You're, you're, you're not winning the game with Dryad of the Leasing Grove beats. Your only other, like, option is Ren and Six Emblem and just Lightning Bolt them into the ground. But that... That's not realistic. Ren and Six buying back Valakits, though, was more realistic than I expected because people are casting things like Buseju to answer your early Valakits. And if you can line up a Ren and Six to get it down, take up, find, uh, you know, bring back a Buseju from the yard, that feels pretty good. This is also the match where I realized that the turn two spells in this deck are really important. Ren and Six, of course, is important, but just like holding up remand, fire and ice for either removal or the tempo play, or growth spirals, and in some cases even dryad. Um, if you have a turn one arboreal grazer, all of these cards are just great on two, and and maybe even super important to the deck. There are a lot of cards that draw cards, too. I mean, remand, ice, growth spiral, Ren and Six. Essentially, I mean, they're all things that keep your hand f- full while you're doing your plan. Yeah. I mean, Explore. Yeah, and it, There's Explore in this deck too, right? It, it wasn't in the version I played, but it is not uncommon for, for you know, these teamer scape shift control decks to run some number of Explore. Yeah, so af- after tasting a bit of victory, I decided, like, should I make my Keeper Mold decisions based on what I'm doing on turn two? Because turn two is perhaps the second most important turn of the game for this deck other than your scape shift turn. Hmm. Is the theory that I'm like testing, right? Match four, five color traverse. So here we are, our first Yorian matchup. Grateful to be matched up against it because anecdotally, this is supposed to be the good one for Scape Shift. My right. record, 2 0. Bam. Dave, I crushed them. It felt like there was nothing they could do, weirdly. Um, it, it just wasn't close. I couldn't believe how few spells I needed to cast in order to just like win and maintain the advantage throughout the game before eventually closing it out with escape shift. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just really set up to kill creatures, right? Like that's, that's what so much of that deck does efficiently. And so if you're killing them without creatures at all, then it's tough. Yeah. And, and look, they can side into some number of counter spells. Sure. Um, and in this case, like my game two of the match, I cast one or two mystical disputes I cast two Mystical Disputes. There were five colors, and, and they played um, that two and a black 
card that you'll probably talk about. Maybe you won't talk about. You you cast it against me when Shadow you were Prophecy. playing creativity against me. Yeah, Shadow Prophecy. So yeah. they're playing that. Oh, interesting. Um, so just like at one point I I I spent a mystical dispute on that just so they don't get two cards. Um, and I can maintain the advantage. And then some Veil of Summers to just back up my basic plan. How they're casting it at the start of my turn before I cast Scape Shift to protect my Scape Shift, or having it as backup if like they want to get into a counter war. Those two cards is basically all the disruption that I needed to protect a plan that otherwise felt inherently strong against what you know the Yorian deck is trying to do. Right. And I, in game two, they had an Omnath on the board for two turns, and they still lost because I got them Hellbent, and then I was just answer all of their other resources. And the you know just this notion that Scape Shift is good against Omnath decks, it just felt immediately apparent to me. Maybe I got lucky. I'm not going to deny that that's possible, but Small sample size, big conclusions. I understand why people might play scapeshift in a in a Yorian field. Sure. All right. So here my record is two two. It's time for the burrito match. All of my matches were o two or two o. That's funny. And how did this one go? I got paired against Burn. Forty two percent win rate. Burn. Come on, you can handle that. Yeah, but we haven't seen the MTG data grid about how Burn fares against scapeshift. Right. My notes pretty lean here i just wrote oh no not like this i didn't really feel like i knew what to do renin six felt like a huge liability just because like i'm doing so much damage to myself but it also feels really important to the overall plan yeah i also it also doesn't have any kill spell- anything in their deck that's the big thing yeah, is that the minus that one doesn't do much against burn doesn't do anything um i didn't have any spells that gained life Scape shift in and of itself is pretty slow. Like if I have to wait till five or six lands, like that's going to take a while. A single grazer can only slow them down so much. Um, yeah, so I got crushed. I, I I went two three in my one league, fifty peepees. Nice, half the peepees you're used to. I know, but it, but it's it's not too bad down here with us in the in the fifty pp land. It happens. It happens. I mean, yeah, like I had I think two hundred and sixty peepees in yep. my account, so. I'll, I'll still count it as a free roll. Hey, it's for Overall, the show. It's all deck. it's all a free roll. Free roll if it's the show. That's right. Yeah, I did have a really good time, and even though my results polarizing, I felt like my matchups were pretty weird. Just like round one Ponza with Scape Shift felt like a what the hell moment. You know what I mean? Right. I can see the appeal to to leaning into the control plan since in a long enough timeline, Scape Shift just ends games by itself. But some of the specific control pieces did feel awkward to me. You know. You mentioned that they draw cards. Remand and Fire Ice just feel like necessary evils. Mm-hmm. When something like Counterspell or just a better cantrip would maybe be better. Like spending two on ice against a field that maybe doesn't care about taking turn two off to like lose access to a land against Scapeshift, which is a pretty slow deck in the first place. Like It just didn't feel like the most powerful thing I could be doing. It just kind of felt like the thing I should be doing. All right, so in the end... It kind of actually just reminded me of playing Emrakul Through the Breach once upon a time ago, just in its play patterns where you play some control, you play a single combo card, you win on the spot, you can be disrupted, yes, but your individual pieces are like good to great along the way. Didn't really capture my imagination though. I did not go out and buy scape shifts, which is basically all I needed to own this deck in paper, but I can see why others would have fun just honing the strategy, spending what seems like a lifetime tuning a few main deck cards to be able to play scape shift indefinitely in this format trying to arrange sideboards for specific metagames like this is one of those decks that i think can endure 
and has endured for so, so long at this point. Wasn't for me, but I think it was a worthy exercise to just kind of understand, like, why is Scapeshift good against five color? What type of metagame is it actually good against? And at the same time, like, why are people saying, like, don't play Scapeshift? It's really good in small, very narrow sm- meta holes, sort of. Is what exactly. A lot of, a lot of good yeah. players say, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. You know, I it, this is one of those decks that I've always looked at and been kind of like, would I do this? But I think that this is really outside of the play pattern of what I enjoy in Magic. Like, Merktide is as far down this particular like control hole as I like to go. And then other than that, I'm, I'm kind of good, you know? So, um, I never really, I, you know, I never got my own Valakids, never got, got scape shifts. Um, yeah, it's sad to hear that this isn't the deck that would make me do it as well, but, um, maybe another time, another place. Tell me about your experiences, Dave. Your All right. Is really good. What'd you say? Your deck is undeniably really good. Except for we just showed that uh, in the meta at Energy, it only had a 40% win rate or whatever it was, and people are starting to really gun for it. Best deck, all that kind of stuff. Um, so like Stan, like we talked about a number of times, I played Monogreen Devotion this week for fun, try to learn some things in Pioneer. Um, for people who don't know or haven't realized, I kind of have always just hated big mana decks. So like Scape Shift has never been a thing for me. Green Tron has never really been a thing that I've enjoyed or enjoyed playing against. Don't really like Amulet. I've always kind of hated this deck, like Nykthos decks in general. Um, so I wanted to give a try to something that I just didn't like, and especially wanted to give it a try since I missed the episode earlier this year where we had Todd Anderson on, and you guys talked about Mono Green quite a bit. You know, it was kind of like when Pioneer was coming back to the forefront um, way back in July. And so we kind of know Mono Green is one of the best decks. It's definitely one of the most popular decks in Pioneer. It's been at for a long time even before people came back to Pioneer. But weirdly, it's gone through an evolution recently that people have sort of just discovered or it's just become much more kind of like the established list to do this thing where you actually use Oath of Nyssa for the second half of its text, where before you really didn't, right? And what I mean by that is the use Oath of Nyssa to cast off-color Planeswalkers. So this kind of started with the sort of memeable using Nico Bolas Planeswalker, the one from Amonkhet, as something that people were throwing in as a one-of, because I think it's just had a lot of capabilities and it was kind of just a good value card to be able to cast off of Oath of Nyssa. And then at some point, you know, I watched a video over the weekend from TCG Player where the person talking about Mono Green Devotion talked about how the combo that was sort of discovered here at a certain point was dis- with Pestilent Cauldron and all this stuff in the sideboard and Kiora and Karn and recycling them over and over again with the backside of Pestilent Cauldron was sort of accidentally discovered on stream by Canister, which is kind of interesting how that how that happens but what's gone from there is that now there's a really easier much easier version of the infinite combo to be able to do using teferi who slows the sun with teferi's plus one where you get to untap a whole bunch of things on the board so we kind of brings together this casting an off-color planeswalker with the possibility of infinite combo out of the sideboard with the the rampy power of the monogree devotion decks so there's an infinite combo on top of this deck that was already good and annoying to play against. And Stan, how do you feel about the fact that this deck has an infinite combo? Do you really want to know? Sure, of course. I, I think it's absurd and unreasonable yeah. for this deck to have an infinite combo. Like, it being a, a ramp deck, great. A beatdown deck, great. But, like, 
it needs to have a way for other decks to like have a reasonable access to play against and weaknesses too. And if you're just going to be able to like play a ramp beatdown game, and then if someone can beat that, you can just like surprise them with a infinite combo literally out of nowhere that's just kind of like shoehorned into your sideboard because of how good Karn is. Like that feels like a broken feature to this deck in the format, and and one of the things that I find least fun about Pioneer. Well, there you go. Nailed it. I think, I mean, I generally agree with this idea. Uh, somehow in all the time that I've, that I've played Pioneer here and there over the last couple of months, months, I really have avoided playing mono green somehow in many matchups, but taking it out over the weekend was really uh, pretty interesting. Uh, I will say I'm going to talk more about my personal reactions to playing the deck than I am going to talk about like the strategy behind it. I think if you want to see the strategy, if you want to see the infinite combo, I'm not going to describe it here because it's many steps. Todd Anderson just released a video about three weeks ago where you can watch him go through a league on Mono Green Devotion, and he goes through the combo Play, plays through it, explains it. I think that's a great place to get really deep strategy about this deck. I think for me, here's what I think about me piloting this deck or potentially piloting it again after trying it out. So number one thing about this is that I kind of feel like this deck feels a lot more like solving a math problem or solving equation than it does feel like piloting a magic deck. You sort of it's almost like the play patterns in this deck are so scripted because it's so light on interaction that, and you can't really sideboard because the number of slots that you can have open for non-Karn fetchable cards or cards that you would rather just leave in the sideboard to fetch with Karn is super limited. Like the list that I played only had two Voracious Hydra in the sideboard. And so I don't think that it's easy to pilot as a result of that. But I do think that you're generally just trying to do the, the same thing all the time, which is get out as much mana as fast as possible, hopefully find a way to draw, either naturally draw Oath of Nyssa into or Star of the Festival into your payoff cards, either assemble a giant army, not a giant army, a bunch of Cavalier of Thorns to kill people with or, and Old Growth Trolls or switch over to the combo if that plan's not going to work and just kill them. And that's like every single game is sort of the same thing. And a lot of that's because this deck is really uninteractive. Like it's sort of the definition of an uninteractive deck. So that was the first thing. I think that the second thing that I realized pretty early is that, you know, playing Mono Green Devotion in the past or playing these Mono Green Ramp decks in the past, you kind of think that what you're really doing is going to always be broken stuff with the mana, but sometimes what you're really, all you're really doing is trying to play as many Cavalier of Thorns as you can to just kill somebody or have in a position where the removal in the format's not really great at getting rid of a 5-6, you know, all the time. And so if you play your cards right, you get one of those way out in advance, you have the ability to recover if they kill your Cavalier of Thorns and then maybe you finish them off with a giant layer of the Hydra or something like that. So this bears repeating. It's a lot like Goblins last week where you it's not really always about the infinite combo. It's often about having the access to the combo if you're in a matchup that it's favorable or if your just attack ground game just didn't really get off. Because I won plenty of games where... In fact, almost all the games that I won that people didn't scoop was, um, actually all of them, was just from attacking with creatures. So a lot of times what happened is that I would be in the position to have the combo, right? 
I don't totally know how to click through the combo online, but I would just be like, okay, I have Teferi out, and I have Kiora out, and I have Karn out, and then my opponent would just scoop. And I'd be like, okay, I guess I don't get to try the combo this time again. And that happened pretty much every time I had those cards out, or even sometimes two of those three cards out. Occasionally, people would just scoop if I resolved Teferi you know, at the right moment when someone didn't have many cards and I had a couple of cards and I resolved to fairy and people would be like, all right, I'm just, I'm just done. Um, which is pretty interesting. So I never even really had to do the combo. I'm not even sure if I could click through it in all the order that you're supposed to, though I do kind of understand how, how it works in, in theory. Um, one thing that's interesting about this deck is that the next thing is that I actually feel like one of the things that's kind of a bummer about this deck is that it has a hard time recovering from bad draws. Kind of mulliganing hurts this deck, even though you have a lot of tools to be able to draw through your deck with, you know, probably what's Pioneer's best pawn quote-unquote best ponder effect in Oath of Nyssa. You know, you have Storm the Festival, which is essentially like a collected company kind of vibe. You get land cards off of Cavalier. So it feels like you're getting cards, but if you have to mull down because you have a bad opener, it's actually really hard to get ahead on cards again unless you get Karn, and then you can go get the Bankbuster card to be able to do that. And that card, let me tell you, it does draw cards, and it, it's reasonable, but it's it's expensive to get it going. It basically costs you four mana to get the first card off of it, and then after that, it's a little bit cheaper. So it's weird because there's good... I guess this is one of those decks where like there's good card selection, but not a lot of card advantage, kind of. So it makes it harder for you to catch up in that kind of way. If you start off poorly, you're just kind of bad. This deck is pretty slow. Like you can get under it with a reasonable amount of expectation a lot of times, especially if people kill your mana dorks. We've talked about that. Um, one of the decks that I lost to quite handily was um, uh, Boros, Ag Boros Agro, Boros. Uh, heroic, where they just got an Illuminator Virtuoso up on two. I had no interaction to do anything with it. Main deck, and they just wrecked me. They hit me for 14 points on turn three. Like, it was just kind of like, okay. So, I'm just dead. Do you think that's the norm? Like, or do you think that's just because you had a slow start? Uh, I mean, I think that because they can give that card trample pretty easily, it's kind of the the norm, you know? Okay, yeah. You, you just can't always throw stuff in front of or throw enough stuff in front of it. And even if you have, you know, let's say you ramp out into an old growth troll and then they can just pump their guy up because you're tapped out. So they know that you're not going to kill their creature at instant speed basically is a big part of it as well. They ramp it up and then they can just attack in anyway with a four, four double strike or, or something like that. So um, I do think it, I think it has problems with aggro decks. Um, I think really the bottom bottom line for me with this is just like I I mostly did practice I really only did practice matches with this. I won a lot of the practice matches that I did. I think I learned some stuff about how this deck works as part of that, but I don't really want to play this deck again. And so I would be happy to see it get less popular in Pioneer just because I don't think it's that interesting to play. You know, I much would much rather would play decks where that are about interacting instead of what I really do feel like is solitaire. Yeah. I mean, that's probably why so many people scooped. Yeah. Right. It's just, for sure. It's just because it's a practice match and the stakes aren't there. Yeah. People would have made me go through the combo if I had been in leagues for sure. But it's funny how many people were just like, nope, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. 
But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think this is my kind of deck. And so the last insight that I would kind of share here just by way of what my experiences were like playing this is like, if this isn't your type of deck, I don't think you should go out of your way to pick it up. Like, your your time playing your favorite card game is too short to spend, like, being being something you're not, I guess I would say. So don't feel like pressure to play Mono Green just because it's the best deck or something. Find find something else to do. Find something else that's equally unfun for your opponents, like Red Black Midrange or something like that. My thoughts on Mono Green. Cool. Well, we all learned something new today. We learned something about decks, formats, and maybe even ourselves. And I think it's time to wrap up the show on that note as we sort of dwell on our learnings, our identities, and whatever the future holds. Dave, this was fun. Let, let's let's just do another two for next week. Sure. Or at, le- at least let's not ask Shane to come back next week from his vacation early. He doesn't. Yeah, we have this on. We have the coverage, Shane. We have it covered. Shane, you'll be fine. You spicy meatball. <laughs> All right, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. If you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. We haven't gotten one in a while, and we know you listener right there. With this show in your hands and ears, you haven't left a review yet. It takes no time at all. Drop one for us. We'd love to see them. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can do that on Twitter at The Dive Down. Also email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash thedivedown. Shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring our show. If you use promo code thedivedown15, all one word, you'll get 10% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. And also, you can get some amazing shaving soaps, body soaps, fragrances, and more over at Barrister and Man using promo code the Dive Down 15 to get 15% off your first order just in time for the holidays. Barrister and Man makes a great present for all the fragrance aficionados in your life. And save some money on paper cards over at Nerd Rage Gaming with code DIVE8 to get 8% off your order from Nerd Rage Gaming. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, see you later, Dave!